Welcome to episode three of season six of Fisher Link. My name is Andrew Shihada, and I'm the vice president of podcast for Fisher Inc. I'm Logan Ward, and I'll be co-hosting alongside Andrew today. It is my pleasure to have Professor Jeffrey Buser on this episode of Fisher Link. As my macroeconomics lecturer, he has taught various economic principles in a way that is both relatable and intricate. He specializes in the economics department of The Ohio State University and teaches both introductory and advanced courses. Welcome, Professor Buser. Please take a moment to introduce yourself further and detail how you became an economics professor. Okay. Um, well, I have been teaching economics. I started teaching economics as a TA in 1980. So 42 years at, uh, at it. If you include those times I've taught at, uh, uh, I did my graduate work at Purdue University. Um, I taught at University of New Orleans. I've taught at Murray State University. I have taught at Ohio Wesleyan. I've been at Otterbein. Um, before I came down here to the main campus, I was uh, teaching at um, the Marion campus. And I've been here on this campus since uh, 2014. Um, until this past year, I also was uh, an instructor at Columbus State from 1990, give or take, um, to, um, to last year. So, you know, been around doing this, that, and other thing, lots of different kinds of students. Um, mostly what I teach is, um, principles, but, uh, here, um, I also teach, uh, intermediate microeconomics, intermediate macroeconomics, and, um, something called state and local finance, which is a public finance course that is geared towards specifically state and local issues as opposed to um, the other public finance course that we have, which is the kind of big picture public finance. Well, that's great. It sounds like you have a lot of varied experiences all across the country and across different uh, periods of time throughout your teaching tenure. So uh, going on to our first question here, included in the liberal arts, economics seems to be a bouncing act of human connections and statistical equations. Given its human influence, have you seen the curriculum change in your years of teaching and how so? Well, actually, the um, it's gone the other direction. Um, the field of economics has become much, much more um, mathematical, much more statistical. Um, so you, um, So when I'm teaching class, I try to reinsert those human elements into the story so that, that, that people understand that it isn't just an equation. It isn't just a, a picture. It isn't just a model. There, there are um, many, many influences to it. And as Logan will tell you, um, every day, the first thing we do in class is to, to answer the question. Every question in economics um, is, is, the answer to every question in economics is what? And the answer is, it depends. <laughs> so um, you, you always have to be thinking about the the there there is no one right answer in economics there never is one right answer in economics you always have to look at the context what the situation is what what are the human elements to it what are the physical elements to it um and um and then come up with your answer now what you are what you do is you are informed by your understanding of economic theory right but but you you know you always know that you have to mold that 
uh, by the the situation that you find yourself in. So, uh, but but if you look at it, uh, uh, the field of economics itself, much more mathematical, much less of that human element. If you were to go back 50 or 60 years, there would be much more of that human element in it than there is now. And um, the um, uh, that that is kind of the the trend in economics is to be more sophisticated, more, you know, mathematical here's you know, we're going to run these numbers by you and 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 um that's fine and there's that, that, that that's an that plays an important role but um when you um when you think about how you apply it you have to bring the element the human element back into it so yeah like when when you have uh quantitative easing you have to think it's not just oh we're doing quantitative quantitative easing it's how you distribute that to people and how that is affected in different ways with who gets it and, and how and over what period of and time. how people are going to respond to mm-hmm. it and um and uh, again what the situation is because you because quantitative easing was something that that they created to deal with a specific situation so you don't want to just do quantitative easing because you can you have to say well under certain under the right circumstances quantitative easing might be a good idea but under other circumstances it probably isn't do you think the uh, increasing level of, of mathematical equations used and that sort of thing is brought is brought on by newer technology like computers to an extent but the that was a it was a um if you go back to say the 1940s, um, 1930s, 1940s, the the field of economics turned, and um, so people like Paul Samuelson um, uh, began to 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 build much more mathematical models um in into these stories the um the 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 economists prior to paul samuelson used math but they told the story and they used the math to illustrate the story paul samuelson more or less said okay here's here's this mathematical model that we can do and here's how you can apply it to these situations as opposed to the other way around right um and and um Probably beginning with he and some some other economists at the time, the field became much more much much more mathematical, um, and um, so that was pre computers. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a it was a um, it was a move. It was it was a sea change in how you looked at things. Um, so so no, I wouldn't necessarily. I would say that the the that the Computers, the statistical models and uh, statistical programs and things we have just, you know, it, it enables it to move forward more, maybe perhaps more quickly than it did before. But um, I don't think it was the impetus for it. Yeah. Well, thank you. And as a Fisher student, I have to take basic economics courses. And um, my brother, an OSU Fisher graduate, actually received a minor in economics as well as his BA. And uh, to any future Fisher business graduates, how would you recommend going about the economics side of their education in regards to their main business administration degree? Well, in given the the nature of your question, um, the the 
the Fisher students are the, the thing about Fisher and the business school is that it's much more applied, right? So, so um, Andrew, you had mentioned that you that that there's this distinction that we have business economics, which is in Fisher, and we have economics, which is in the arts and sciences. So, so if you think about the way um, the way business classes work, economics is is unique um, because it has a foot in the business school but also has a foot in the arts and sciences now you say well wait a minute those are two different departments but it's really economics right so um when you're thinking about economics in the business world it's got to be applied it's got to be we, we've got a problem here we, we we need to uh we need to to estimate this demand curve we need to estimate uh, we need to figure out what kind of price is going to work for this. We need to to um, uh, we need to have some idea of our interest rates rising or falling, and what is that going to mean for our borrowing costs and things like that. So, so business economics is is really laser focused on that kind of stuff, that very applied kinds of of things, and um, the the business economists approaches problems of let's find something that's going to work to let's let's figure out a way to to address this problem and 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 um and and uh, it may not be elegant it, it it may not even um it may be even counterintuitive in terms of some economic uh ideas but it works right whereas the the economics department in the arts and sciences going to be the much more theoretical side of that. So they're they're going to be creating the models and they're not really worrying so much about how those models are going to get applied. They're creating the models themselves, right? So they're creating that uh, that those ideas then that the business economists are going to put into the real world. And so in that sense, it's kind of like math, right? The, the mathematicians create all these mathematical tools and they have all these mathematical theories and models they don't do anything with them, right? They say, once they come up with them, they say, here, here they are, here's the tools, put them to work, do this with, you know, figure out what you want to do with these. And that's kind of what the theoretical economists do. And um, so, so in the, uh, in, so, so the arts and sciences economics department is much more on that side of it. Now, me, I'm a teacher, right? I'm that, that's what I'm, I'm a lecturer. I'm hired to do the teaching. Uh, so when when I when I'm standing in front of a uh, a 550 person class, um, I recognize that there's going to be a chunk of econ students in there, but but there's a much bigger chunk of Fisher students in there. Plus, there is engineering students, ag students, all these other students, right? So my goal is to give you enough economics that you can apply it to to um to what's going on around you to use it to to think critically right I mean, you probably hear that all the time critical thinking critical thinking okay um so yes but so 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 what are the tools that economics is providing you how do you use them um, and, and, and then try to say, well, here's a situation. How are you going to apply it? And that can brings us back to the, it depends story, which is okay. 
these the we we know generally speaking how these tools and concepts fit together how they work but you have to apply you have to look at the specific situation that you're in and say okay in this in this specific situation this is going to this may not work quite the way the the general story works so we have to think about how how this thing is going to get modified in this particular situation so um so coming back to your original question, if you are if you're a Fisher student and you're thinking about about this, then you, what you want to do is you want to grab those concepts, you want to grab those tools, and you want to say, okay, now I'm going into this finance class. This then and this finance class is talking about interest rates and how we, how interest rates are going to affect things. Well. If you if you want you want to know first of all how interest rates are going to affect things, but then you also want to know something about well, what's going to happen. Interest rates are they going to go up or down. What what uh, what what kind of things drive that? And so um, finance doesn't spend finance is all about the effect of that change in the interest rates. So the business economists can come in and say, well, this is why interest rates are going up, or this is why interest rates are going down. So if you can anticipate that change, then you can come over here and say, you can use, you can take your finance and say, well, when that happens, this is what we could expect, right? But you, so, so, so the economics is providing you with the, with the tools, the concepts that you can apply to those business problems that you've got. So your human resources, should, uh, should we expand our business uh, or, or should we expand our hiring? Well, Economics has something to tell you about that. Um, you are um, uh, you, you are um, in accounting. Um, there, every big accounting company has an economics unit in it, and that's because the accountant comes. The accountant needs something to count, right? I mean, that's that's not a plus or a minus, it's just the nature of the beast. There has to be something to count. So the accountant comes across something, they say, wow, I would like to be able to count that, but I've got no way to do it. I've got no way to figure that out. And so they go to the economist and they say, I would like to count this. Can you give me, a, a, can you put a value on this? And so the economist takes their economic knowledge and says, okay, yeah, let's let let's look at it this way, and now you can put this value on it, and now the accountant has something to work with, right? So, but the accountant should have some idea of where that number came from. Why did the economist come up with that? What did they do? Just make it up? You know. So, so again, that's how you can how you can put your economic knowledge to work. So you can almost think about it like a coach having a playbook, and that being the economist, and then when that play is is out on the field and you're a, a someone in Fisher maybe who's graduated, you kind of have to know what the purpose of that play is and maybe what that's going to mean for the next place coming up and, and kind of reading the field when the coach is, is kind of in overall control of the broader things that are happening. Right. I would say that's, that's reasonable. Right. And so you mentioned how in, in your classes, you know, you have hundreds of people and there's different proportions of majors in there. So, there's obviously economic majors, like you mentioned. Do you hear from a lot of people who've graduated 
with the economics major and, and what some of the career paths they took after they graduated are? Well, I actually, I probably know more about what career paths they're heading into <laughs> as, as they're getting, as they're walking out the door rather than hearing back from them when they come in, because a lot of our students, they disappear, right? They go off into lots of different directions. So, um, you know, they, um, I hear, oh, I just got uh, an offer from this accounting firm, or I got an offer from the Federal Reserve, or I got this, you know, so, so I, I, I know where they're headed, but, but once they're off, I rarely hear back from them again. Um, so it's a, uh, so, so it's not quite the interconnected world that Fisher is. Um, the, I, I, I get a sense that, that, that Fisher people are all over the place. And then you, then, you know, you go out and you connect with all these other Fisher people and you come back and at some point and, and, um, talk to other, uh, talk to your professors or whatever, but, uh, mostly, um, the econ people, they just go out and start working and do their thing. And, um, occasionally we see somebody pop back in, but mostly we don't. So you'd say like the accounting firms and the government sector is probably one of the more popular oh, areas well, for people. Government, uh, finance, human resources. Um, we put a lot of people in nationwide insurance. Um, the um, uh, yeah, I mean there there are uh, we uh, and and we're not even talking about the ag people, which is another whole brand of economics, right? Which used to be ag econ, they now call it agriculture development and something else. I forget what it is, but it's it's the old ag econ department. And that is that is incredibly applied because it's all about, you know, farming and 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 um, helping uh, helping develop get get uh, helping underdeveloped economies move forward and so forth. So they're they're very much hands on over there. So that's yet another world. But I have virtually no contact with that world mm -hmm. outside of students again coming in and taking classes. But uh, that is the, but that so that's a very very separate department from everybody else as well. But um, you know the thing about econ. If you're an econ major, is econ is incredibly flexible. So, one of the best uh, undergraduate majors, if you want to go on to say law, you want to be uh, go go to law school, get your economics degree. That'll that'll be um, you will find that to be one of the best things that you could do as a as a preparation. You want to go into medicine. Econ can be a good background for you there. Uh, you want to go into um, you want to go into uh, entertainment. Uh, econ's a good background for you. So it, the thing that's the thing about economics is it's so flexible. You could basically do anything you want with it because the the tools and the concepts are not unique to a specific situation they they're again it's i keep coming back it's kind of like math right math gets used everywhere <laughs> if you're a math major you can do virtually anything you want um and econ is the same way because the, because the tools are very general and you take those general tools and you apply them to the specific situation you find yourself in and um then it works so um you know the uh 
the fishery con people, they probably focus very much on the, the various fields and business where you need to be. Um, marketing, accounting, um, I mean, the, the marketing people would probably hate for me to say this, but marketing is, 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 is very much applied economics, right? Um, so it's, a, it's about demand and it's about setting prices and, and uh, trying to get people to buy stuff. And, and that's all economic theory. Um, they, they, they put the marketing imprimatur on it, but it's, it's there and finance is, is very similar. Finance again, is very much applied economics. That's why the first chapter in your marketing books is an economics chapter. Your first chapter in your finance books is economics chapter, um, because you need that, uh, in those fields, uh, accounting, not, not quite so much. Um, but as I, you know, I just indicated to you a little earlier, counting under counting knows that they need uh, economists to step in because the the in in the world of arts and sciences, economists are the hard-headed, practical folks. But in the world of Fisher, in the world of business, economists are the philosophers. <laughs> so you know, the, the people of business say, ah. Oh, well, you know, I want to kind of do this, but I, but, but we're really not allowed to do this. And, and you know, and we're, we've got these constraints on us here. And the economist says, oh, well, you could just do, you could try thinking about it this way. And so it's a, it brings in that kind of um, bigger picture story that, uh, that you don't get when you're, when you're so laser focused on, on what you're trying to do. And, um, but uh, so, so anyway, uh, I'm, I'm going on here, but the, the point, the, the, to get back to your, to your original point, you get a degree in economics, decide what you want to do, and you can do it with your degree in economics, no, no doubt. And economists, believe it or not, economists are some of the highest paid people around. <laughs> That's always a good incentive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and you mentioned, uh, economists almost being like the philosophers and that and that reminds me of how we've learned of uh, classical neoclassical and keynesian economists uh, meanwhile in the political sphere economics continues to be a divisive topic along party lines um, as a professor do you find yourself subscribing to a economic theory or philosophy and do economists outside of academia subscribe to one strongly well every economist you know there is a person right and mm -hmm. so you have your personal beliefs and what you think is important or not with it, you know, some economists lean liberal, some economists lean conservative. Um, the, um, so, so yeah, I mean, every, everybody, uh, every economist that you come to is going to have that personal kind of view about things. But, um, uh, one of the Nobel prize winners, Milton Friedman, um, always said that, Economists don't argue about economics. They argue about their personal beliefs about things. So, so if 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 two economists are arguing, it's not it's not that they're arguing about well, how does is the demand curve upward sloping or downward sloping? They both know the the, the demand curve is downward sloping. They're not going to argue that point. Uh, but the 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 point that they're going to be arguing is um, should we be increasing demand or decreasing demand, and how should we go about doing it? That's all. Um, uh, there's there's personal preferences in that case. So um, yeah, the uh, 
many, many, many years ago, I heard uh, heard, heard economists say that um, the Keynesian story is um, is one where if things are really bad, the Keynesian story can help you make them less bad. But in general, the Keynesian story doesn't work. <laughs> so the and and I thought that that always uh, appealed to me is is you you have to be eclectic, right? You have to cons- again, you have to consider what's going on. What is the situation? And and the classicals provide you with certain tools and and certain story about how this works. The Keynesians provide you with certain tools and and certain stories about how this works. Um, the problem that I always saw with the Keynesians is that they the Keynesians are believers in government. If you're going to argue the Keynesian story, you have to believe that the government knows what it's doing. The government knows how to do it, when to do it, and the government's going to get it right. And I, I always tell my students, if you don't trust the government, if you don't believe the government knows what it's doing, or the government knows how to do it or when to do it at the right time, then you're going to struggle with this Keynesian story because, you know, as we tell the Keynesian story in the classroom, it's, oh, we know exactly what we want to do. And, and since we know exactly what we want to do and we know exactly the situation we're in, we can do this. And in the real world, it's not quite like that. And so, um, I don't distrust government, but I figure government screws up most of what it does. So as such, um, that's uh, come back to that, that comment, which is when things are really bad, if the government screws it up, screws up things a little bit, they can still help. But if things aren't so bad, then the, the government's quite likely to make it make things worse. <laughs> so I tend to to um, lean towards the classicals and lean towards the idea that that I have more faith in the individual than I do the government, and that would be the story that the classicals would be telling, as opposed to the Keynesians. The Keynesians don't trust the individuals; they trust the government, and and I don't. It's not again. It's not that I distrust government, but I just don't really have a lot of faith that they know what they're doing um, exactly. Too many unknowns, and um, the uh, and, and and as 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 a result, I tend to say, uh, you know, if we really don't need the government here, then let's not get the government involved. Um, I've seen. I've been around a long time. I grew up in. Uh, I was in high school in the 1970s. Um, so you know, you you may have heard the term stagflation. I lived stagflation. Um, I saw. I, I saw how. I, I saw the the Volcker uh, response to to stagflation. I saw the Reagan. I saw Reaganomics. I you know. I've seen. I, I saw Clinton in action and so forth. I've seen a lot of stuff, and um, uh, I just I just know that. We don't always know what's going on, <laughs> and and if we don't know what's going on, it's hard for the government to make clear-cut policy decisions. And then you get the fight between the liberals and the conservatives, 
and the Democrats, they tend to lean Keynesian, and the Republicans, they tend to lean classicals, um, although there's, you know, spectrums there. But um, the, so, so the, the, uh, you you would you could have a George W. Bush who is saying who 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 says that we 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 need to um, or actually a better example would be George H. W. Bush faced with faced with a recession he his response was well we really don't need to do too much here because what goes up comes down and he said. As far as recessions go, this one really is not that bad. It's a relatively mild recession. Now, Clinton <laughs> smacked it, right? Um, and as a result, Clinton was elected. Um, and Clinton came in and he said um, uh, that, that, that government's here to solve your problems. And, and people say, yeah. And, and George, w. Bush, George H. W. Bush, he's a do-nothing president. Well, no, he wasn't a do-nothing president. He just had the idea that, that he didn't need the government to solve that problem. And he had, a, had, a, had an inside thought that was telling him, if we try, we're likely to make things worse. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think it's difficult, too, because there's such a high turnover rate in the appointed parts of the government and the voted in parts of the government. And it's hard to be able to test one theory for a long enough period of time and those policies to see which one would work out the best because you just keep going kind of back and forth with more one direction or the other. And, it, and it's also hard for the public to kind of make their mind up on which one they'd prefer to vote towards in the future because you just keep changing it so often. So uh, um, when you say that it's difficult to, to, to try these things out, um, Going back, the um, we we had World War II, and in World War II, the of course the government is making all these choices. Government setting prices. Government's telling us what we can, what, what kinds of products we can have, and how much we can have. So we're, so so that war ends, and the economy, um, uh, and and we're we're thinking post war economy. So uh, in the post war economy. People thought, and people went back and they said, "Wow, it was Keynes that got us out of the Great Depression." So we, so Keynes got this right. And so in the in the late forties and the fifties, um, they're putting all these Keynesian theories into into place. They're working the they, they're working the Keynesian economics, and they're saying, "Oh, this really seems this seems to be a good idea. This this is really kind of working." And then they get into the sixties, and they're darn sure it's working. This is this is really we we've got this figured out, and then in the 1970s, the the we we experienced um, we experienced two events. We experienced the OPEC oil embargo, which drove up the price of oil um, 300 percent, and at the same time, there not while not in the United States but around the globe, there was a, a drought. There were drought conditions. And so agricultural production dropped. So even though the U.S. farmers were doing quite well for themselves, everybody else is is is, is struggling. So the the price of agricultural products shoot up too. So you got energy and food at the same time shooting up, right? And um, that leads to stagflation. And um, the Keynesians the Keynesians said. 
oh, there's a recession, which you always, with stagflation, I mean, the, the stag part of it is a recession. So the Keynesians said, oh, it's a recession. So here's what we do. We spend more money and, um, and we get out of that recession. Well, that's in a, in a, in a typical kind of demand side recession. The, the prices are low and unemployment is high. So you spend more money and that brings the unemployment rate down, even though the prices are coming up a little bit there, it's okay because they were too low to start with, right? I mean, that's how you, how you think about that. Mm -hmm. But in the 1970s, the prices, the, while unemployment was high, the prices were high too. And so when they go to spend more money, that just drove prices even further up. And they, they this can't be. We can't have high inflation and high unemployment at the same time. Our Keynesian model doesn't tell us that. So then they thought, I don't know what's going on here. This is this is beyond our ability. And um, and so other economists came and said, well, that's because your model was wrong. So let's try this, right? Here's some here's a new idea. So that's for example where supply siders came from. And, and and if you think about Reaganomics in the 1980s, a, a a an element of Reaganomics is supply side economics. And supply side economics says that that if you want to deal with a, with a if the problem is stagflation and stagflation is a result of too little supply, how do you solve that? Well, you find a way to increase supply. And so they said, well, here's the problem. There's all these government, the government's doing this and the government's doing this and the government's doing this. And all of that's causing supply to go down. And what we need is supply to go up. So we need to get the government to stop doing that and stop doing that and stop doing that. And then we can get the supply up and that will bring prices down and that will bring unemployment down too. Now, this is again. Remember, we're we're still in a Keynesian world here, and so so um, uh, they called that voodoo economics. Oh, that can't happen. <laughs> so in the 1980s, when it did happen, they were shocked, right? And that's mm -hmm. and, and and so Keynes the the whole Keynesian model comes into question because of that. But but for for you know for 25 years they were pretty much putting it to work. And then Reaganomics was putting was putting that to work until Clinton came along, and Clinton's kind of a hybrid guy. He's done doing a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Clinton was was always about well, whatever seems to be popular, and if it works, it's cool. <laughs> More importantly for Clinton, it had to be popular. So if he could sell it, he didn't care what it was. So you've mentioned some of the historical instances we've seen of uh, economic activity with recessions and the popularity of decisions made by government. So more recently in 2020, we had the COVID-19 recession in, in March of that year. So that, that led to price increases, logistics issues, on high, very high employment um, that affected everyone. So if you were entirely in charge of that economic policy, what would you have done differently and what would stay the same? The, um, the, problem with the 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 uh, covid situation was that that there was um a lot of uncertainty about what's going on and a lot of fear about what was going on and so the 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 best and brightest minds were telling people oh well what we need to do is isolate we need to 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 um 
not go out in groups and 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 just stay away from people because if if you're not breathing on them and they're not breathing on you, then you're not going to get COVID and they're not going to get COVID. Um, so the 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 economic advisors to the president said, "We got to shut this economy down." Right. We're going to we're we're only going to keep the 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 most vital things open. So we'll keep the hospitals open, need grocery stores. We're going to keep the grocery stores open. Um, anybody who is doing something that um, will help us deal with this um, pandemic, we'll let them do it. But everybody else, we're going to sh- we're going to shut you down. And that was, in my mind, that was a huge mistake. At, at the time, I thought it was a huge mistake. Um, because what uh, talked about in the 1970s, you had this supply side situation. Well, the government, by its action, created a supply side recession. Now, this is something, you know, some people, a lot of people think that, that the, the recession um, in, uh, coming out of COVID was a demand side recession. Again, demand side being too little demand. But what what we really did was we 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 just destroyed the whole supply start part of the economy, and so what you had was a supply side recession. Now, um, the uh, the uh, Trump, uh, whether you like him or not, um, Trump recognized the the what what he had done, and. In by April, he was ready to reopen things, and he was trying to push in that direction, and um, and he was shouted down. Um, so so it took them another three months or so to to begin to reopen things. And as soon as they began reopening things, the unemployment rate began to to drop, and um, and and production started to rise again. And and uh, but but. We were still we still had all these restrictions going on, so so we were still constrained. Um, of course, Trump lost the election that year, and the Biden administration came in in January. And the Biden administration, the economic advisors, uh, the president himself, leans largely on the Keynesian side of things, and so Keynesians say, "Oh, it's a recession. How do you get out of a recession? Well, you spend money." And so they, hey. Let's have a two trillion dollar COVID bill, which they they spent they passed almost immediately. A little later that year, oh, let's have an infrastructure bill, so they passed that. This year, um, after after a lot of haggling, they passed uh, a a quote unquote inflation reduction bill, which it will have absolutely nothing to do uh, with with reducing inflation. Um, but that's how they sold it. Um, the and, and so it's all about spending money, spending money, spending money. But the just like in the 1970s, when you have a when you have a supply side recession, you can't spend your way out of that. Well, you can halfway, because what you do when you increase spending is you'll get that unemployment rate down. And the Biden administration did all right. To the, the, in, in their credit, they brought the unemployment rate right back down to where it was in early two in, in early 2020, but in early 2020, the rate of inflation was 1.8%, and now it's 8.3%. And they they didn't understand. They they thought, oh, this is just a temporary thing. That's what you heard all of last year. Temporary, don't worry about it. It's going to go away. But of course, here we are a year and a half into it, and it just keeps getting worse, not 
better. So they finally dropped the temporary business, and but they 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 still don't quite um, want to to recognize. Oh, it's that spending. It, it's it's a supply side thing. We got to worry about the supply side. They still want to try to spend their way out of this. So, can you elaborate a little on the Inflation Reduction Act and and what why it could be doing something other than what it suggests with that title? Well, if you um, if your problem is that that you have high rates of inflation, um, let's say that you are a Keynesian. Um, the way you solve that is you slow down spending. You get spending to fall because that's going to reduce demand. And as demand falls, the prices come down. But they don't want to do that. I mean, because because in, in the in, in the Keynesian world, they will also tell you as demand falls, unemployment rises. And that's the one thing that they that's the one shining little thing that they've got is a low unemployment rate. And so they fear that if unemployment begins to rise, that they're going to get into trouble. Um, so they they uh, so what are they doing? Well, the Inflation Reduction Act is spending more money. It's not gonna that's not gonna bring prices down. It's going to cause prices to rise. You know the 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 best analysis that they could get was well in um, in twenty twenty nine it may bring inflation down by point one percent. Well, you know, it's 2022. It's uh, we, we we don't want to hear that that five or seven years in the future inflation may be down by some fraction of a percent. We want to know what's going to, what's happening now. And that that act really didn't do anything to uh, to to reduce the inflation pressures. If anything, it acted to raise the inflation rush pressures, which then puts more pressure on the Federal Reserve to keep rising interest rates to cause to slow down spending in another way so it's a, uh, that's that's a dangerous kind of thing that that you're you're playing around with yeah and and um continuing the the concept of the pandemic and the resulting recession um, how does it compare to the 08 housing crisis recession or the one in the early 80s following stagflation okay well those are two Two entirely different stories, and, and but but it, it's 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 useful to to think about those two stories because we were told in two thousand and eight two thousand and nine that we that this recession was the great recession, and the reason they used that term, of course, was because it harkened back to the Great Depression. And oh my goodness, it's the Great Depression, but not quite. But we're going to, we're going to have to do all this stuff to make sure we don't get the Great Depression. Um, what people don't recognize is that Paul Volcker in 1982 drove the drove the unemployment rate to 11%, which is higher than it ever hit in the Great Recession. Hmm. So, so the Great Recession was not entirely the worst recession since the Great Depression. Um, it has there were elements of it, but there were also elements of the 1980s. That that were worse, but um, so so the two thousand and nine recession was a demand side recession. Um, the housing market collapsed. The um, there were uh, 
there was a lot of financial fear. Um, people decided they needed to save more money, stop spending money. Demand's falling. So um, the, there's a huge recession because of that, because of all these different factors coming in. Um, so how do you deal with that? Well, that's a, that's a nice standard Keynesian situation. The way you deal with that is you spend more money. Um, so the government came in when, when Barack Obama came in in 2009, they had the, um, they passed the, the, the economic recovery act and, uh, spent, uh, spent something like $2 trillion more to, to try to get things, uh, rolling. Um, Paul Volcker in, uh, in 1981, 1982, what he was dealing with was a rate of inflation of over 13%. Um, the unemployment rate was, 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 uh, was around 6% when the time, but he, but they, Paul Volcker, um, Jimmy Carter put Paul Volcker in place, not because he liked Paul Volcker, not because Paul Volcker was his guy, but because he did, his guy failed. <laughs> And people told, and, and Carter said, okay, I need somebody who's gonna fix this problem. So he called on Volcker and Volcker said, okay, here's the problem. If we have if we have this high rate of inflation, it's because money's growing too fast. The money supply is growing too fast. So how are we gonna solve this? We're gonna slow down the money supply. So he put his foot firmly on the brakes and the money supply dropped. And as a result, of course, the economy went to, into a recession. And, and, but, but Volcker said, we have to do this. This is the only way that we can get the, we, we, can, only, we can squeeze this inflation out of the economy. So in 81 and 82, he created this huge recession with, because, because uh, there was this supply side stuff going on. And so he created this huge recession. He brought the rate of inflation down from 13% to about three and a half percent. The unemployment rate shot up to 11% and then steadily began to come down. So that by 1983, um, uh, the Volcker says, okay, we're good. I think we've, I think we're, we're where we need to be. And the, the Fed started to, to let the money supply grow again. And so in 1984, Reagan was able to say, it's morning in America again, and, and won 49 out of 50 states in, in the election and got himself reelected. So, uh, but that, so they're, they're, they're entirely different scenarios that, that they, they were fighting different situations. So would you say we're closer to a the 80s scenario because of the supply side yes we are we're, we're we're thinking you're looking more at stagflation now than um than 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 uh what we were seeing in 2008 2009 uh, because um unemployment is still low but production is falling and um so the uh probably the problem with unemployment is it's a lagging indicator. So it's one of the last things to change uh, when the economy is moving. The, the reason for that is because businesses um, 
when when businesses would prefer not to lay people off if they don't have to they try to keep the personnel but so so coming as a recession starts the businesses are slow to let people go but when we're coming out of a recession they're also slow to hire them because they say well how do i know we're coming out of this so rather than hire more people they 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 offer um they offer overtime to their existing people and then they keep doing that until overtime becomes too expensive and then they start hiring people so um that but but the 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 point there being unemployment lags so if the economy is going into a recession now the unemployment rate probably won't start rising until two or three months from there. And so how is the recovery of our economy going? Start, let's say starting from 2020, how have we recovered since then? And there's talks about another recession that we're either in or approaching very soon. That'd only be you know, two and a half to three years from when that last recession was. So mm-hmm. how are we recovering and getting back to where we want to be well we've recovered as far as we're going to get um the the economy if you follow the rule of uh, a rule of thumb which is two consecutive quarters of dropping gdp is a recession now that's not entirely valid but if you use that rule of thumb we're already in a recession because we the economy dropped in the first quarter the economy dropped in the second quarter so we've seen two consecutive quarters of declining GDP. Rule of thumb says we're in a recession or we're darn close to one. Um, we will see, we should see the, the first uh, look at the third quarter in about, well, about 15 days, maybe. No, actually, I take it maybe within the week, probably we will. We'll get a, we'll get a, um, we'll get a, a, a GDP report here towards the end of the month. So in the next week, we'll, we'll see what, what that one does. If it's three week, if it's three quarters in a row of down, well, then you can probably pretty well guarantee it's a recession. Um, but, um, we'll see what we'll, we have to see what that is. But, but I would say the, that the recovery ended probably somewhere around the beginning of this year. So the unemployment rate is in, in, in January of 2020 before COVID. The unemployment rate was about 3.4%. Um, where it is now, it's about 3.5%. So unemployment, we're we're back there. Um, but in terms of uh, in terms of production, um, we are definitely slowing down. We're we're not that 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 upward trend in production, which as we re, you know naturally when we reopened the economy, was what was going to happen? Well, the economy was going to grow, right? So it was it's it began growing fairly steadily even before Trump was out of office. Um but probably by uh, by the beginning of this year the the recovery sort of peaked and we're we're probably on the downside. Well, we'll, we'll just have to see what those numbers look like coming out. <laughs> uh for reference everyone, we're recording this on October 26, 2022. So within the next week or so coming up here, we'll have the answer. So hopefully you'll uh, see what, what the result is by the time we upload this. Yeah. One of the things that you, you, you find out with, with macro data is though it tends to wobble. <laughs> so, 
So um, you you probably need to look at several readings to to really get an idea what we're where we're where we are. Which also then means we're we're always always behind the 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 eight ball on this thing because something's happening and we don't know it's happened until several months into the uh, beyond that. Definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, I think it's great to have give something. Uh to look forward to, or may not look forward to, but anxiously await. Um, our listeners can well, definitely. Well, if you want something else to actually to, to anxiously await, the federal there's going to be a Federal Reserve meeting here in the in the next ten days, I think. So um, they will tell you whether they're going to raise interest rates by another 075 percent or not. Yeah, so a lot lot to anxiously await. I guess that's the best way to put it. Um, what can private entrepreneurs and business owners do in a time of a recession uh, compared to a time of recovery like we were seeing following COVID? Well, there again, the answer is going to be it depends. It depends on what kinds of things they're, 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 they're manufacturing or what kind of services they're providing. Because as economists, we talk about some products are normal goods and some products are inferior goods. So normal goods being defined by as income rises people buy more of them and as income goes down people buy less of them so if if the product that you are selling is a normal good then recessions are bad for you and you need to batten down the hatches right now um but inferior goods are exactly the opposite so inferior goods if the if income is rising people buy less of them but if income is falling people are going to buy more of them so if we are going into a recession that's actually good for companies that make inferior products because uh, there's so they should be looking to ramp up and have more stuff out there to sell because this is the this is their time to shine right um so the uh that, that's uh uh, you kind of have to, to to think about where you what your situation is now. More goods are normal goods than than are inferior goods, but still. Um, so so how should they work? Well, um, if you are uncertain about the economic future, probably one of the more important things that you should be thinking about is not putting a lot of debt on the books. Um, so if you are if you have a fair amount of debt, you should probably try cleaning that off. And um, if you aren't, if your balance sheets are pretty solid, then you probably don't need to add a lot of debt right now. Um, if the when 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 the when the, the signals are that the economy is going to be expanding again, that's when you pick up the debt because that's you, you can you can take that debt and you can um, uh, be be in a position to take advantage of that expansion. But um, if the economy is dropping. Um, if your sales are dropping, your revenues are dropping, that means uh, paying off that debt, paying the interest on the debt becomes more and more of a problem. So it's better to, to, to reduce the debt on your balance sheets if in, in uncertain times than to add to it. Definitely. Yeah. And so Logan mentioned entrepreneurs and people starting their own businesses or people in working in corporations on what they should do. And you mentioned debt and and when to take that on. But what about individual students and economic students, business students, people that are entering the economy, the workforce for the full time, for the first time? What's your advice to them to navigate this kind of situation we're in? Um, 
be as flexible as you can. Um, if you uh, have have a plan B, a plan C, um, because the uh, the the right now, as as the with all the uncertainty, um, there's there's going to be a lot of businesses who are talking about laying off um, or not hiring. And so um, you may find it difficult to to get that dream position that you want right off the bat. So you know what 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 where where what you fall back on that um, because this is uh, coming into a recession. Finding a job in a recession is not easy. Now, right now, it's there's a lot of strange things going on in the economy right now. We have. Um, we, we have like 11 million unfilled positions. Um, why those positions are unfilled is hard to know. Um, but uh, at the same time, businesses, the, the, the word from the business world is that they're more likely to be laying off than hiring. Um, so it's a, uh, so, so, give your put put as many irons in the fire as you can get and if you can't uh if if you're not getting that that dream job that you want you know have have that 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 plan b plan c in place so that you can say well if i can't do this this i can this will work out for me and then you can uh later on when the economy begins to pick up again um you can you can rethink the the where where you are and if you wanted to try for that dream job again you can do it at some point plus you'll have a, a couple of years of experience at that point which will help you out a little bit so that's what I would say is flexibility is the key. Yeah, it's it's difficult to kind of concede a little bit and, and maybe your expectations change from when you started college when the economy was in a different spot and now things are a lot different and, and heading a different direction. But I think being able to be flexible and set yourself up for long-term success and, and to like accept that things are um, where they are, I think that's that's great advice for people to – to take into consideration. Totally. Yeah. And I think circling back to my brother, he graduated around the time that COVID was hitting and um, a lot of his friends did have to take those sort of temporary jobs. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as, you know, bills are getting paid, but you're still building experience and, and um, the business world always have that dream opportunity um, around the corner if you take that chance. So I definitely think it's something important for graduates to remember for us to remember as we go forward. Well, uh, Professor Buser, I really appreciate you coming here and sharing your time with us and really giving lots of broad insight to some of the history of economics, as well as some of the things we're seeing today, and then some of your opinions on different strategies to navigate different situations. Sure. Yes, thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of Fisher Link. Fisher Link is presented by Fisher Inc., the student-run magazine for the Fisher College of Business. I'm Andrew Shihada, the Vice President of Podcasts for Fisher Inc., and I would like to thank Daniel Rose, the President of Fisher Inc., for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed listening, please leave a review, check out our past episodes, and be sure to follow us on Instagram at Fisher Inc. Mag for updates on future episodes. Future Link is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on go.osu.edu slash Fisher Inc., where you can stay informed on all things Fisher. 
Thanks so much for listening and go Bucks.